many books in print when nothing happens, and Deuteronomy sits statically five books in from the start of the Bible. Still, there is a huge market for self-help manuals, and though Deuteronomy may be light on action or drama, it is some of the earliest self-help literature that can still be found. The self-help the book offers is very much a checklist of things that will please God and ensure success when the Israelites arrive in Canaan, as well as behaviours that will infuriate God to such a degree that he will annihilate Israel and exile its people to the furthest reaches of the known world. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible episode 47, The Purge. Hello and welcome, I'm your tour guide through the Bible. This is not my official title, I'm not endorsed by any church or denomination. You won't get preached at or told what to think either, there are a lot of podcasts out there that will do that. There are also a lot that ridicule the Bible and that's not my intention either. Respect for people's beliefs or lack of them feels like the best approach for a tour guide to take. However, now and then I do point out how excited some religious people get at certain parts of the book. You can make your own mind up as to whether this excitement is deserved without me telling you how to do it. My firm belief is that A, the Bible is for everyone, not just Christians, and B, the Bible is an epic work of literature that has defined Western thought and culture more than any other work, and so should be much more widely appreciated. The Bible I refer to is the hugely helpful Zondervan New International Version UK edition. Now, back to the action, or lack of it. Quick warning, if you're a tightwad, you won't like this next bit. As he stands by the banks of the River Jordan addressing the mass of Israelite exiles from Egypt, Moses recaps a selection of the laws spelled out in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. These include the ban on shaving or self-mutilation when someone dies, and a reminder of which animals may or may not be eaten. As well as the laws that dictate that any animal with a cloven hoof and which chews the cud, and any fish with scales and fins is permissible, one of the laws has changed. In Leviticus, no one was allowed to eat any animal that had been found dead, but here in Deuteronomy, roadkill can be given or sold to foreigners. Tithing is clearly important in the new country, but if someone lives too far away from the tabernacle to haul their offering of grain and livestock, they should sell the animals and other produce and take the money to the tabernacle, where they can buy whatever they need and enjoy it in the presence of God. Moses tells his people not to overlook the Levite workers who help at the tabernacle and neither own nor earn anything. Every three years, the tithe is to be brought to the storehouse in each town to act as a kind of food bank so that the landless Levites, the widows, the fatherless and the foreigners with no family or land can have something to live off. If they do this, Moses says, God will bless them. Reminding people of the year of Jubilee, Moses explains how all debts are to be cancelled every seven years. Foreigners appear exempt from this particular love-in, a possible add-on to the law now that Israel will be living alongside and no doubt trading with other nations, and so any external debts must still be recalled. 
Moses grandstands that there need never be any poor people amongst the Israelites, as God is about to provide for them beyond their wildest dreams, provided that they continue to follow him. Israel will be rich, he says. It will lend to many nations and borrow from none, perhaps unwittingly heralding the awful stereotype of the avaricious money-lending Jew. But more of that later. Israel will rule over many nations, their leader tells its people, and it will be ruled by none. Having established that there will be no poor in Israel, Moses then goes on to provide a safety net in case anyone should actually find themselves poor in Israel. Generosity is hugely important, and no one is to be hard-hearted when it comes to helping any poor people who are living in their towns. They are to give with what Moses calls an open hand rather than a tight fist and should lend willingly. Importantly, they shouldn't be so mean-spirited as to not lend anyone anything if the seven-year debt cancellation is imminent. If there is an appeal, they will be found out and Moses leaves the social embarrassment of this happening to their imagination. So, Jews and tight-fistedness. Historically, Western culture has pigeonholed Jewish people as being stingy. As a child in Gentile rural England, not offering people chips or candy was being Jewish or Jewy. Having been born Jewish, my mum was a child refugee from Nazi-occupied Vienna, I kept my mouth shut. I won't deep dive into this prejudice here, but it is believed to have something to do with Jews in the West being forbidden to own land in the Middle Ages and using the interest from loans as a way to earn money. This was exacerbated by laws forbidding Christians to lend money and charge interest. The image of the grasping Jew wasn't helped by novelists like Charles Dickens, whose characters Fagin in Oliver Twist and Quilp in The Old Curiosity Shop come across as pure racism. To his credit, Dickens appears to have been mortified by his creations and introduced a much more sympathetic character, Mr Rear, in Our Mutual Friend. For the record, philanthropy is an important part of Jewish culture and many prominent Jews today, such as the Rothschilds, the Pulitzers and the Zuckerbergs, have made significant donations to charitable causes. Not only are the people told to give generously, they are not to begrudge giving to the needy. This will result in a successful life that has been blessed by God, Moses tells them. In the Jubilee year, slaves are not just to be freed but should be sent on their way with gifts. Owners are encouraged to give as generously to their slaves as God has given to them, and they are reminded once again that they themselves were slaves in Egypt who God freed. Slaves who want to stay with their owners may remain, but allowing a slave to go free should be done with good grace rather than begrudgingly, as these people would have worked twice as hard as any hired worker. Moses assures the owners that God will bless them for their kindness. Tagged on to the message about giving to others is one about giving to God. The direction to set aside every firstborn livestock animal for him is repeated. The firstborn ox shouldn't haul a plough, nor should the firstborn sheep be sheared. Instead, they should be killed, cooked and enjoyed with family at the tabernacle. Any animal with birth defects must not be sacrificed as an offering to God, but can still be eaten at home as long as it has had its blood drained away. Israelites' parents were party to all the pertinent information about major Jewish festivals, but in case this knowledge hasn't been passed down, Moses shares it with them. 
Rather than go through every law given to Moses in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, Deuteronomy can be seen more as a highlight reel. So, instead of giving details of every festival, Moses focuses on the three major ones that all Israelites need to be aware of. The first is Passover, and the people are warned to rid their homes of yeast for seven days, and to make sure that no uneaten meat is left over until the next morning. The purpose of the Passover celebration, he says, is to remember the sudden and dramatic exodus from Egypt. People mustn't simply celebrate the festival wherever is convenient to them either. They must bring themselves to the designated place that God chooses for his worship centre. At this point, Moses has no idea where the tabernacle will find its permanent home. This is a matter between God and Joshua. Everyone should roast and eat their meat at this central worship site, eat yeast-free bread for six days, then take a day off work to gather together for a religious ceremony. Next up is the Festival of Weeks, known today as Pentecost. This festival is not connected to any historic event, but kicks in seven weeks to the day from when the people first put the sickle to the standing corn. Incidentally, sickles are one of the oldest agricultural tools, and experts believe that they reaped their first harvests in the Near East as far back as 10,000 years ago. The people are expected to give freely of their crops and livestock, as these are seen as gifts from God. They are also told to rejoice with their families, their servants, the Levite workers who live among them, as well as those who typically have less than them, the foreigners, those with no father to provide for their family, and the widows. The sense is that this is a genuine celebration, and the Israelites should use it to remember that they were once slaves in Egypt, unable to live and thrive as free men and women. Tabernacles is the third festival which Jews are expected to celebrate. Moses actually tells them to be joyful. Like the Festival of Weeks, Tabernacles is not tied into the lunar calendar, but marks the end of the harvest when all the corn and grapes have been brought in. The celebrations should include everyone living in Israel, regardless of nationality or social standing, because God will bless their harvests and bring them joy, Moses tells his listeners. For all three of these festivals, no one is allowed to slack off by celebrating at home, and everyone must bring an offering to God that reflects the amount which they believe God has enriched them. Laws, by their nature, need people to enforce them, and Moses explains how God wants Israel to do this. Every town in the newly settled Canaan is to have its own judge, who must be both bribe-proof and unimpeachable. Bribes blind the eyes of the wise, Moses tells the crowd gathered before him, and they twist innocent people's words to pervert the course of justice. And justice is paramount to the ongoing success of Israel, they are told. Moses then runs through some more rules to do with worshipping God. Unsurprisingly, no one is allowed to erect any kind of sacred stone, let alone one next to the altar which they will build to God at the designated temple site. God detests this behaviour, Moses says, as well as offering flawed or deformed animals as sacrifices. Any allegations of idol worship must be investigated thoroughly. If someone has been found worshipping the sun or moon or stars, they are to be dragged to the city gate and stoned to death. One witness isn't enough to convict the defendant, and any witnesses whose testimony results in a conviction must be the first to hurl their stones. After they have begun the attack, the stoning can become a free-for-all. 
the execution is seen as purging the evil that lurks among the Israelites and should act as a deterrent to others. If a matter is too complex for a local court to resolve, the case must be brought to the central worship site, where the priests and the sitting judge can give their verdict. Whatever the response, it must be followed to the letter, and anyone who shows contempt to the judge or priests should be killed as an example and warning to other would-be rebels. Knowing that people like kings, even though Israel has never had one, Moses advises how to pick the correct candidate. The choice should be God's, he says. Kings should be Israelites. Anyone from other nations is automatically excluded. A king is not allowed to accumulate vast numbers of horses, and under no circumstances must he return to Egypt to replenish his stable. The Jews are forbidden to go back there. He is also not allowed to accumulate wives or treasure, a rule later overlooked enthusiastically by Solomon. Taking multiple wives in the ancient Near East is often due to political alliances. This practice therefore shows a king's reliance on politics rather than God to protect his country. To prevent him from going rogue, the king of Israel is to copy out the entire law by hand, carry it with him at all times and read it every day. He is not to consider himself better than any of the people who he rules. He mustn't deviate from any of the laws and if he succeeds, he and his descendants will reign for a long time. Moses' briefing continues with further rules that protect priests and outlaw sorcery. He also introduces an enigmatic character that has puzzled Bible doyens for centuries. Like many church leaders today, priests have no income other than what they are given by the people who they live amongst. Remember, instead of the Israelites offering their firstborn sons to serve God, God has struck a deal where he claimed the entire tribe of Levi as a kind of job lot of firstborns. For this reason, the rest of the Israelites who have been let off the hook are encouraged to give generously, presenting priests with the first corn, wine and olive oil from their harvests. Priests are also entitled to the shoulder, guts and head of any animal sacrificed and the first wool from any sheep. Priests may also sell all their possessions, move to the bright lights of the central worship site and serve God there rather than in their own locality. Should they do this, they will be given a share in everything the priests take from the food and animal sacrifices brought there, despite having money in their pockets from the yard sale which they held before they left. Moses has already described what should happen to anyone who dares to make an alternative god the centre of their universe once they reach their new homeland. Here he reiterates that following any pagan Canaanite custom is completely embargoed. There will be no child sacrifice, divination or sorcery, no interpretation of omens, witchcraft or casting spells and no attempts to consult the dead. God finds all of these detestable, Moses tells them, and it is because all of these are currently a la mode in Canaan that God is clearing away the Canaanites to make way for his own better informed people. Enigmatically, Moses promises that God will raise up a prophet. The local nations who lean more towards the dark arts end of religion listen to sorcerers and diviners, he says. But this prophet will be a homegrown Israelite, and they are to listen to him. 
Moses reminds his listeners that when God spoke to their parents on Mount Sinai, they were so terrified that they begged him to stop speaking in case it killed them. God then agreed to raise up a prophet and put his own words in the man's mouth so that he acts as God's voice to the people. Anyone who refuses to listen to this man is told that they will be made to face the music, while any prophets who spout their own opinions or those of other gods must be killed. Understandably, the people might need to know how they can differentiate between genuine and sham prophecy. The answer is simple. If a prophet speaks and what he says fails to come true, he is clearly a fake. Perhaps predictably, Christians believe that the prophet mentioned by Moses is Jesus. Meanwhile, Muslims believe that he is Muhammad. Refuge cities have already been designated for the tribes who will be remaining on this side of the Jordan and, rather than arrange the western refuge centres randomly, thought needs to be put into their location. They need to be easily accessible for anyone who is being pursued by furious and grieving friends and relatives intent on avenging the death of a loved one, however accidental it might have been. Moses tells his people to divide their land into three parts, so that each third has a city of refuge relatively close at hand. An example of an accidental killing is given. A man chopping wood in a forest whose axe head accidentally flies off and hits his colleague in the head. The woodcutter must flee to the nearest refuge city before the dead man's avengers catch him and kill him. If the distance to the city is too great, the man risks being overtaken and overpowered before he can be given a fair trial. It appears that the land that will be settled by Israel immediately after the conquest doesn't represent the full amount of real estate originally promised to Abraham. The sense is that if the people follow God and remain loyal to him, he will unlock the rest of Israel for them. Should this happen, Moses tells his listeners, they should build three more refuge cities, bringing the total to nine. According to the Bible, the first roads built in the Promised Land are the ones connecting other towns to the cities of refuge. Anyone who lies in wait for their adversary and attacks and kills them, then flees to a city of refuge, must be extradited and handed over to the Avenger of Blood the family member closest to the murder victim who must carry out their execution. The whole purpose of the cities of refuge is to ensure that no innocent blood is shed, Moses says. That's why anyone who may be innocent of malice must be protected from extrajudicial killing and why anyone guilty of murder cannot get away with taking a life. Moses warns his people not to move any boundary stone once it has been set in place in the new country, then turns his attention to people who witness a crime. As he has already made clear, one witness cannot convict anyone. If someone is intent on lying in a way that might convict someone, they are to be brought before the priests and judges who will investigate the matter. If the witness is found to be a liar, then their punishment should be the same that the accused would have suffered had their lie succeeded in convincing the court. Moses reiterates the need to purge Israel of evil and tells his people that these draconian measures are in place to prevent anyone else from trying to pervert the course of justice. This is no time for pity, he says, offering up the mantra known as lex talonis, life for life, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. 
And so here we are, in the almost untouched pasture that is the middle of the book of Deuteronomy. Those who have been with us since we kicked off our journey eight months ago, especially those of you with no religious faith, must be marvelling that you have journeyed so deep into what are often seen as the flyover books. I hope you're getting something out of these podcasts. The message may seem dense and archaic, but the big picture remains. God has handpicked Israel to be his chosen nation. He needs its people to act differently to any other nation, hence the involved and ultra-specific code. And he has prepared a fabulous land of plenty for them all to live in. The pep talk continues next time, with more prep for the big push into Canaan, a land which many among the Israelites fear is filled with gigantic warriors leading highly trained armies. Some might even be legitimately hoping that Moses never stops talking, so that the attack never happens, permanently delaying their inevitable destruction at the hands of unknown and terrifying enemies. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y-B-U-Y-A-B-L-E. Holy Bible. Oh, and if you like what you're hearing, why not give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to this podcast? Thank you.